Good morning. I want to first welcome our visitors. I see some new faces in here. Welcome to the class. My name is Russell. I'm filling in for Tim Jennings, who is uh, our usual teacher. He's in Atlanta doing a talk this weekend. On uh, I think he's doing his talk on the biblical model for healing of the mind, and we want to wish them well down there. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we pause on this your day to acknowledge you as our creator, our redeemer, and our healer. I want to thank you for the gift of life and the gift of health and the gift of healing itself. Most of all, I want to thank you for going to such great lengths to win humanity back to acceptance through the life and death of your son on this earth. Please guide our study this morning as we continue to explore what it is to be your disciples. Um, we ask your Holy Spirit, not, not only in this room, but in our lives as we uh, continue to hasten your second coming. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. We're studying lesson number nine. It's entitled, Following the Master, Discipleship and Action. Let me get someone to read the memory text for Sabbath's lesson, which is also the same text for Wednesday's lesson. It's the one from Mark 8, 35-37. Shout it out. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This sounds rather ominous uh, to me. What? Any thoughts or insights from you guys? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will it profit a man to lose his soul? Any thoughts? Yes. The first thing, <laughs> desires to save his life. I see that as saving his stuff, his things, his way of life, property, the things that get in the way of relationship. Okay. Good. I guess the, the key word there would be desires. Yeah, he, he, he desires his own uh, his own interests more than the interests of others. Well, this very much flies in the face of survival of the fittest. Uh, Indeed. Or he who dies with the most toys wins. Mo- yeah, most of what Christ said flies in the face of that. <laughs> in fact, his entire life on this earth was a revelation, the antithesis of uh, me first, survival of the fittest. Any other? So it's selfishness versus selflessness, giving and giving and giving. Losing or giving up what you could like or desire or want or need, whatever it is. What about the next uh, The next passage? Whosoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What does that tell us? Well, Jesus is talking about uh, eternal life. I mean, maybe some here, you get some gains from, you know, as we might think, worldly gains. But I think he was thinking more of eternal life. And how did he define, define what eternal life was? To know God. I believe that's John seventeen three. Is that right? This is, this is life eternal. Not this will be life eternal. He said in the present tense, this is life eternal. Mm-hmm. That you know the one true God and him who thou hast sent, Jesus Christ, his son. 
What about the last part? What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Yes, sir. Ellen White in one place says the value of a soul is worth more than 10,000 worlds like our own. Uh, if that's how God values one soul, uh, you know, then that's 10,000 times the ratio of the value of this world if we had all of it. Okay. I think he was just trying to bring out the concept that it, it, it's kind of ironic. It brings the uh, importance of giving up everything, your selfishness, into the law of love. I mean, it's it's really just a way of, of acknowledging that that's what it's all about. To, to lose yourself, you know, is just to get back in harmony with the law of love. That's how you gain something. What is our soul? Your complete being. Okay. I think it's your character. Interesting. Any any other insights? Yes, sir. I believe it's the life. The life. Regardless of if it's the earthly life, the physical life, um, not the spiritual life, because the spiritual life would be something else. Okay. Well, in Hebrew, the word is based on nefesh, which is... Uh, uh, what word? The word soul? Yeah. Okay. Which uh, can be translated breath. Uh, and so this is a metaphor for what the soul is like. Uh, it's something very subtle. Does a soul exist separate from you or me? Is it something ethereal floating around or, or within us? Or is it like Linda suggested, is it the character that we've developed over a lifetime based on our choices and our judgment and our reason and our belief system and our worship? Are they different? I want to tell you, I don't have an answer. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning with you. I, I'm, I, I'm wanting input here for my own edification. Go ahead, Mike. I don't really have the answer either, but if Jesus is talking about saving your soul, and the only thing we're going to take with us to heaven is our character, I think what she said makes a lot of sense. I agree. Any other insights? It's the intangible part of it, right? Okay. Good. Let's shift gears. We're talking about discipleship here. I will confess I found this study a little difficult to organize and, and to um, get into a, some sort of a cohesive package, so uh, bear with me if it seems like we're rambling. Let me have someone look up Exodus 20, verse 7, please. And actually, I'd like to hear it from three or four different versions. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Okay, is that the NIV? Mm-hmm. Anyone with a different version? I have good news. Do not use my name for evil purposes, because I, the Lord your God, will punish anyone who misuses my name. Okay, any other ones? The message, not using the name of God, your God, in curses or silly banter, <clears throat> God won't put up with the irreverent use of his name. Okay, a little bit of a different slant. All right, 
how does this, which is a well-known commandment of the ten, um, how does this tie into discipleship, or does it? Yes. It's the name of a company, like when we work someplace. Mm-hmm. Important that we learn the objective and we behave like the company and we you know, portray the image of the company. And we're talking about using the name of God. And how lightly it could be that we are calling ourselves Christians. And unfortunately, that's perhaps one of the main reasons a lot of people that are not Christians don't want to have anything to do with Christianism. Well said. Thank you. Um, And I I like the uh, company metaphor as well. Those of us who... Well, okay, I'll take myself, for example. I have my own physical therapy practice. I am the only representative of that therapy practice. So the way I speak, the way I dress, the way I treat my patients and my referral sources is a reflection of that company. And if I don't follow a mission statement that I have set forth for myself, then I misrepresent Mm -hmm. that company. And to call ourselves Christians... And then to represent a false god or a false Christ is that? Do you is that what what uh, the third commandment is talking about? As opposed to Swearing. trivializing, uh, oh my god, something like that, or is it both? Russell, I remember someone once saying, if you were on trial for being a Christian, do you think you'd be convicted? (laughs) Interesting question. Any other insights on how the third commandment reflect uh, what it what is telling us about discipleship? Yes, I think a couple weeks ago, Tim had, had mentioned even in the sanctuary metaphor where the angels on the veil and the, the smoke had to be, the incense had to be waved in the veil seven times because the misleading or the misrepresentation of God by people proclaiming to be believers is even more heinous and more difficult to overcome than a, a non-believer's ignorance or, or stuff like that. So... Hmm. By proclaiming to be Christians and followers of Christ, and not yet not representing actually the, the true character of God and the, the law of love, we could we could lead people astray even more than having no message at all. Interesting. Yes, in the back. You know, in the context of our memory verse, he that saves his life shall lose it. He that loses his life for my sake shall save it. Uh, the second commandment, uh, I'm sorry, the third commandment here, uh, really implies that people who use his name for gain are, are the ones that are really breaking the commandment. Okay. So I'm going to look up Matthew 26, verse 73. This is a familiar story about when Peter is standing in the courtyard while Christ is on trial for the Sanhedrin. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Okay. Another version? 
What version was that? New International. Okay. Another verse? the next verse, too, because that... Um, sure. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Okay. Anyone have another a different version? New American Standard. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely, you too are one of them. For the way you talk gives you away. Okay. The lesson quote, or the teacher's quarterly quotes the New King James Version says, Surely you are one of them. Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. I like to think, and I may be off base because the the first version we first version we had uh, indicates that it was the accent that betrayed Peter as a disciple. I like to believe that it was something different, though. I like to believe that Peter had been so converted to to what he had seen and heard uh, in his travels and, and accompanying Christ through his mission that the way he talked, the manner he spoke, betrayed him as a disciple. And it was, it was unmistakable to those who saw it that he was a disciple of Christ. In the subsequent verse, in order to deceive the people, he acted out of character and called down curses on himself, uh, simply in an effort to hide the fact that he was a disciple. The point I'm trying to make is that true disciples of Christ, it cannot be. We cannot hide ourselves. You know, we're like a we're like a city sits on a hill. Any thoughts? I agree. Thank you. I'm just saying. I was thinking that that it was second nature. It came easy for him to. I mean, it, it became so much a part of his way of life and speaking and dealing. You, you've been around people, all of us have been around people that we feel so comfortable with, and you like their delivery. You like who you are when you're in their presence. You become like who you worship and admire. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, a law. Correct. And yet we still see that he had not purged the desire to save self. Right. Right. Because he was fearful. Well, that's actually comforting for me. That he, uh, amen, brother. You know, that's tried to disregard it and messed up. And but it was within the next minute that he converted. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, that he... Because sometimes you he have was, to fall all the way to the bottom before you can... He had not yet fallen on the cornerstone and been broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, broken. Okay, let's, uh, let's move to Sunday's lesson. Let's just read one account of this. This is the account where um, Peter's mother-in-law was uh, ill. Someone look up Luke 4, 38 and 39, please. Jesus left the synagogue and went to Simon's house. And Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a high fever, and they spoke to Jesus about her. He went and stood at her bedside, ordered the fever to leave her. The fever left her, and she got up at once and began to wait on them. Any thoughts on this? And how it relates to discipleship. My version said Jesus rebuked the fever. I just, I enjoy the idea of, him, I rebuke you, fever. And the, and the fever left. Sorry, it just tickles me. Um, 
Let's uh, look first of all at the disciples. What did they do? They asked Jesus to help her. Hmm. Was did anybody think that Christ was unwilling of his own volition that he had to have intercession? He had to he had to have pleading. Did he not know that she had a fever ahead of time? Why do we think that he waited uh, until he was asked? Yes. Because we have freedom. Ah. Hmm. Yes, in the back. Because he wanted uh, for them to recognize his dependence on him. Okay. One thing to remember is that she had uh, a very, very low social standing in this society. Let's look at her. She's a mother-in-law living in her son-in-law's house. This meant that she probably had no son. She had a daughter, that's all she had. Uh, so social standing was very low. If you will look at this series of miracles, uh, these are all people that are marginalized and, and on the edge. And, um, uh, you know, lepers, uh, foreigners, mother-in-laws. Children. Children. Sinners and tax collectors. But also the fact that any time anybody had sick sickness or a, um, a problem in any way or a loss, they thought it was because of the sins they had committed. Mm-hmm. So that was their belief at that time, and the healing of that really just uh, really flew in the face of that that belief. Exactly. Thank you for that insight. Yes. Back to the disciples, begging him or asking him to do this. Mm-hmm. I'd see that kind of like prayer in that as we pray for something, our, our faith is strengthened as we see God working, or Christ working. And this would give them a response to their faith in Him and the expression of that by begging Him to do it. Because they knew He could do it, and when He did it, that again would strengthen their faith in Him. Okay, thank you for that observation. I hadn't considered that. Okay, let's look at the mother-in-law. What sort of discipleship did she uh, exhibit? Or did she? Afterwards, she served them after she was healed. Mm. So she used her spiritual gift of hospitality. Anyone else? Okay, let's uh, move on to Monday's lesson. This is the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. Uh, someone read this uh, in Luke five seventeen through twenty six, please. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic man on a mat and tried tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking by themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. 
Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Thank you. I want to ask the question here that the lesson uh, asks. What powerful, important point can be found in this story, and particularly verse 17, and what message of warning should it have as well? Read verse 17 again, please, Ashley. Today, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Okay. These are people who are supposedly knowledgeable about God and who are supposedly teaching of God, but then they're standing there judging mm. God's actions and his... I don't know, sometimes it seems like we think that we know a lot because we are Christians and then... Mm. I don't know. One yeah. thing that was happening was that people that didn't need help were crowding so close around him that the people that really needed help couldn't get there. Okay. And the people Did, that really needed help didn't know that they didn't needed. recognize. Yeah, perhaps the Pharisees needed more help than the paralytic, but they just didn't understand it. They needed healing. Didn't perceive it. The teachers' quarterly had a bit of a disturbing um, <laughs> statement here in talking about this particular story. It says Jesus forgave the paralytic as a result of the faith of his friends. What does this tell us about the power of our intercession on behalf of others? Did Jesus really forgive the paralytic as a result of the faith of his friends? Does Christ need our intercession? Does God need our intercession to be forgiving? No. No. But our friends do. We come to places in our lives where we're so so weak, spiritually weak, or insecure, label, whatever, whatever you like, that we need the prayers of those we love. Okay, we need the prayers, yes. And maybe even our friends need the prayer, their own prayers of intercession. The problem I had with this is that it, it still falls into that old, for me, an old way of thinking that, you know, God is the one that needs, needs to be worked on. He's the one that needs to be... He's the one that needs to be persuaded into our way of thinking. And it's not it's the other way around. We're the ones that are out of harmony. Prayer, prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. Exactly. But also, Russ, the, the, it didn't say that the paralytic didn't have faith. Because obviously his friends came to them to him and said, you know, Jesus is in town. Let us take you. Mm -hmm. and he must have allowed them to say, right. I'll go with you. And so they were... Well, I could have even refused. Yeah. <laughs> I see your point. I, I, you know, I, I'm sure he was willing, but... Yeah, but, but, he, but he had a faith. Even if his faith was based on, on something that his friends said, he had a faith that Jesus could heal them. I agree. I don't want to diminish the, the faith of, of the friends of his, because when they, when they got to the house and saw that there was a mob there, they could have said, oh, well, well, we'll try again next time. No, they said, hmm, what can we do now? Hey, I got an idea. Let's climb on the roof and remove some tiles and lower him right down into Christ's lap. And Jesus respected their faith. I mean, I, and I, don't, want to, I don't want to diminish that either. I, I believe that Christ was, was truly moved by their faith. But I don't think that's why the sins were forgiven or that they were healed. Chip. I just thought it was interesting here that uh, it doesn't say in the story that they wanted their sins forgiven. Exactly. They wanted them healed. And the first thing Jesus said was, your sins are forgiven. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm just wondering why. You know, the only thing I can see is is because of the company, because of the teachers, the Pharisees that were all there. I think he was trying to, you know, lead them into. I mean, they accused him of blasphemy right away. Correct. And going back to what Linda said, the 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 whole culture was um, was based on. Well, this guy's paralyzed. Either he or his family has committed some heinous sin. Don't you think that it had more to do, Jesus' response had more to do with him coming to the issue in the man's own heart? In other words, this was the biggest concern was that his own sins had brought him to this condition. And so Jesus dealt with that first in spite of what the people around him thought, which he didn't really care about. Yes, I wanted to say that uh, Jesus saw the persistence uh, of his friends. And that showed the faith that they really had on Jesus, one. And two, um, he also, when he said, your sins are forgiven, we have to remember that there's consequence to our sins. So this probably was... The consequence of his sins. Are you suggesting that he was paralyzed because of some unconfessed sin or continual sin? (laughs) (laughs) Pork will do it every time. He had a a diet entirely of bacon. Yes. I don't know. I guess this just really kind of confuses me. Jesus is saying this first. It almost sounds like he's still fueling the idea that sins causes all of these maladies. Yeah, I can see where you get that from. It, it looks that way a little bit to me, but uh, I think if you take the, his entire life as a whole... Well, yeah, but I mean, so... What was the point of him saying that then? I mean, was it to get I think he was, he was baiting the Pharisees. He knew he knew the Pharisees' thoughts, and he may have been simply trying to draw them out and engage them and share something with them. I've got a hand here, and I'll get to you in just a second. Yes? Um, I think that may have had part to do with it, but I think Jesus was addressing his sins because that's more important to Jesus than if we can walk or not. God is trying to cure our hearts first, and I think by saying it first, he's letting him know, yes, I want, I want you to walk, but this is more important to me, that you know that you are forgiven and your slate is clean. I think that's important. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. That's good. I think that, um, well, this is a bit extreme, but that the man was paralyzed because of his sins. Because if you think about it, the wages of sin is death. So really, we all deserve to be dead. We don't even deserve to be alive. So the fact that he was paralyzed, I mean, that's just like nothing, really, because he deserved to be dead because he's a sinner and a sinful man. And so God just has so much mercy to even keep us alive. And, I mean, sometimes, like, you're like, hmm, well, why? We don't really understand, like, the consequences to sin a lot of the time. Like, why is this person, like, so much worse than this person? But then we don't know God. Maybe he's developing this person's character. I mean, that's why they're going through something harder. Or So... There is speculation, though, from scholars that this man um, was indeed maybe in the latter stages of STD or something like that, which is consequential to his own behavior. But he wouldn't have known that. Mm-hmm. Nobody would have known that. There was no ideological or medical therapy or understanding. It was simply, if you have a condition, you offended God. Mm-hmm. 
And for Jesus to remove the condition was tantamount to saying he no longer offends God. And he just added, your sins are forgiven by reiterating the point that the healing means the person's been saved, restored to the community. So see, it's lifestyle. It was his lifestyle that caused the power, like, you know, the, his illness. But we don't know if he was born there. We, we, yeah, we don't. We don't know that. Um, yeah, he could have been kicked in the head by a horse or... Uh, one ditch or the other. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's all happenstance. It's all accidents of heredity versus it's all something we did. You know, it's like the uh, question of the blind man. Who sinned? This man or his parents? Well, it's a consequence of sin, but uh, that's not the, the question that Jesus answered. He said... The purpose of this man's blindness is to glorify God. Correct. Thank you. Ashley. I've never understood the when he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk. Like, I don't, I've, it's always puzzled me. I don't. Well, the Pharisees could have said, your sins are forgiven. But they had no authority to pardon sins. Only Jesus had it. But they, but they could have. They could have said it. They could have said, "Your sins are forgiven." Now, they would have been correct. His sins were forgiven. Our sins default forgiven. God is forgiving. That's that's His nature. Not according to their thinking. Correct. Correct. They thought that God was not as forgiven. They thought God had to be appeased, appeased and and pleaded with. And had to have the blood of lambs and bulls and countless slayings of animals and mindless rituals in order for God to be happy with them. And only God could forgive. You know, man could not forgive. That's Correct. Calling him blasphemous. Correct. Pharisees can forgive. You and I can forgive. It's, it's recognizing and acknowledging the forgiveness that we have as sons and daughters and brothers and sisters of Christ that leads us to extend that forgiveness to to the rest of humanity. Maybe Jesus was just saying, I have the power to do both. I can do I can do both. I can say to this man, get up and walk, and he got up and walked. Pharisees couldn't do that. Correct. And that was the fundamental difference. Uh, the Pharisees could have said, God forgives your sins. You are forgiven. But they could not have... Well, I... Uh, back up. If they had that kind of faith, they might could have healed him as well. Who knows? There would have been no physical evidence, though, if they had said, get up and walk, because he, like, there's no physical evidence to prove whether or not your, your sins are forgiven, but there's definitely solid evidence that if you say get up and walk, and he doesn't get up and walk, then, you know. Okay. Any other insights? I think getting back to, um, you know, why you know, the people at that time thought, which you've already discussed, they thought that your physical maladies were a direct result of your sin or something. So maybe Jesus was just meeting them on their level when he, you know, said your sins are forgiven. And he also knows that man's heart. Maybe that man has been, you know, struggling. And, uh, you know, so he, he told them that maybe it was more important to that man that his sins were forgiven than he walked even. Good point. Christ read his heart and gave him what he most needed in order. 
Let's uh, let's move on to Tuesday's lesson, please. Let's just go ahead and stay in Luke. So I'm going to look at Luke 12, 49 through 53. I have come to bring fire on earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother in law against daughter in law, and daughter in law against mother in law. Now, when Christ was born, what did the angels sing? Peace on earth. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And yet, Christ himself is saying, I did not come to bring peace to the earth, I came to bring fire. And I wish it was already kindled. What's our Savior talking about here? Yes? The inherent results of change. Okay, that's part of it. I see that all the time in my practice. In dealing with our physical bodies, it, it develop, we develop an inertia about ourselves. And joints and connective tissues are resistant to change, even if it's a change for the better. And oftentimes my patients experience discomfort uh, when they're in the process of that change. And I try to make it very clear to them up front that this is, this is the way things are. That we, we develop this inertia about ourselves that we don't like change, uh, even a change for the better, Ashley. I think this is just another effort of Jesus to bring to, these, to his followers' attention that his intentions are not what they are expecting. He's not, you know, they are just, they're so blinded by their pre-expectations of what was going to, or their expectations of what was going to happen and their preconceived ideas. And he, it's just another effort for him to <clears throat> inform them that he's not coming to, you know, make everything, like, he's not going to set himself up as a king right now. You know, he's not going to settle everything now, but later. And also, I think it's interesting that when he says, I have come to bring the fire on earth, and Jennings, um, you know, presents the idea of the hellfire being God's love, and it's an all-consuming fire, you know, that will consume those who are not filled with God's love at the end of time. You, you know what I'm talking about? And I think it's interesting that he talks about that right here, because he is, that's what his job is, to bring that fire you know, and that love and show that, but some people aren't going to be receptive to that and responsive. Thank you. Fire of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit is, is known as the spirit of the wind, the dove, the, the, the fire, the flame. And, uh, and the spirit of truth brings division. Uh-huh. Dividing joint and marrow and bone and... I was just going to mention Pentecost in that context. Okay. Well, when you get down to the real reality of it, when you confront people with the truth about anything, sometimes it can be very uncomfortable. You know, the truth can be in in any regard. So I es- think that especially that's of what he's talking about it can be very violent. Especially if people are holding on to desire to believe in a lie. Mm-hmm. Or if it challenges their lifestyle or their behavior or their beliefs, it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful and, yeah, violent. Okay. Um, Ashley brought up the point that uh, Christ was trying to lead his, his audience that he was speaking to into you know, one more step further toward the idea that his was not an earthly kingdom and that he was not going to set himself up as, as 
Israel's king and, and, and throw off the shackles of Rome. What's he saying to us today? It's not going to be an easy road necessarily. It's not going to just be like a peaceful, smooth thing. We have to, it's going to be something that we're going to face challenges. And What are the two antagonistic principles still at work in the world today? We've been over this numerous times. Shout it out. There's no harmony between good and evil. Survival. We have, we have God's methods, God's law of love, which says... I will do anything up to and including lay down my life so that yeah. others can. can survive. Opposing that, we have Satan's law, which is colloquially known as uh, survival of the fittest, which says that I will do anything up to and including take your life so that I may survive. If we are in harmony with Christ's principles and methods and his law of love, this antagonistic principle is going to be seeking to destroy us. And it may be like a fire. Okay, I got three hands. I'll get them. Yes. Uh, we were talking, you know, about it came to my mind that we are called to be peacemakers rather than peace keepers. When Christ came, was he a peacemaker or peacekeeper? And did he bring division? Well, we have a text that says, um, let me see how I write this down here. Peace like war is waged. Along the lines of being a peacemaker rather than a peacekeeper. I think in business, in the classroom, individually, as we interact, and as a church in general, Christ's style of bringing the truth right to the front is very important for us to study. And, and not only that, not only bringing the truth to people's awareness, but it matters how we do it, mm-hmm. and it matters what we do after we do it. So if we, if we present the truth... Not of, for example, oh, I don't know, the Sabbath, uh, in a manner that's confrontational and a- accusing and uh, judgmental, what sort of results can we expect? And if we don't leave people free to decide after presenting that truth, what sort of results can we expect? Ashley? I was reading last night, and I read, came across a quote, and I think it was in Ty Gibson's book, and it said that love mandates freedom, freedom creates risk, but love is worth the risk. Thank you. Yeah, Ty, Ty made another good point relating to that, that, um, well, I had a point. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great point. Sounds, had, great sounds point. like... Uh, <laughs> Sounds like I'm listening to my own inner monologue. <laughs> I know. For me, I just got to keep it simple. And and um, you know, when I think about why Christ came to the, this earth, I think it really was to recreate God's character, to demonstrate God's character of love. And when I read that text, I have to first get the context of God's purpose or Christ's purpose in coming here, which was to demonstrate that love. So it, it really doesn't hold a big mystery to me that. 
the fire is a right idea about God, which clearly wasn't present during those times and frankly may not be present now. And the kindling is just a desire for, you know, for a right understanding of God's love. Okay. That was it. Let's, uh, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> well, this presents a nice segue um, to the next point uh, I want to go over. This We're talking about the love of God, and... Let me get someone to look up John 14, verse 15, and someone else to look up 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, and someone else, Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. And let's read John 14, verse 15 first. If you, obey, if you love me, obey my commandments. All right. If you love me, keep my commandments. Mine says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. So, cause and effect. Right? What? Throwing the word want in there. You will want to keep my commandments. Okay. The highest expression of love is obedience. Okay. Well, what is this commandments? Yeah, I, I was I was going to get to that. Uh, commandments based on love, and if you love me, you will love. They're enabling. His commandments are enabling. I think once you're actually in tune with what God expects of us and His love, you're going to naturally act the way He does. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to come out from inside of you. You're not going to actually work at it. It's just going to come. And how does that happen? By just staying in His Word and reading His, his Word and just being in tune with Him, just keeping a strong relationship with God. Ah, a relationship. <laughs> So we have evidence that just reading Scripture doesn't quite cut it. The Pharisees are ample example of that. Uh, they they knew Scripture forward and backward. They could recite shockingly long texts from memory. And yet when God came and walked on the earth and spoke with them, they tried to kill him. So there's got to be a little more than... There's got to be more to it than just reading Scripture. This transformation that takes place, um, I think Paul speaks very eloquently about it. It is not I that live, but Christ living in me. We have these two natures at war with us. We desire to do what's good, but we don't. The, the, you know, Paul again says that, that that which I desire to do, I don't do. That which I desire to avoid, I do. What a wretched man I am. Thanks be to the grace of God. Who has 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7? Here's where we define what love is. And not you know, not the romantic puppy love. This is what true, unfailing love is. Shout it out. Okay. Love suffers long and is. Kind love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. It is not provoked, thinks no evil, does, does not rejoice in inequity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the way we should be towards other people, towards people in our families. 
I don't see smart in that list. What, love is smart? <laughs> I didn't get the part where it says that it does not remember past wrongs. Where's that? Patient, kind, does not envy, boast, proud, no, rude. Keep no. Keeps no record of wrongs. Okay, there we are. Yeah, but that's contrary to what everybody else believes. I believe God's like Santa Claus if they're making a list of what you do right and wrong. Checking it twice. <laughs> Investigating it. Ooh. Ooh and judging it. <laughs> Investigating and judging. Fascinating. Hmm. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us how to respond to a person who injures us. But there's no counsel as to how to respond to the person who injures somebody else. Bonhoeffer in World War II was upset about the fact that the Nazis were persecuting the Jews, and he had a dilemma, what am I supposed to do as a Christian? It's not that they're hurting me, I'm not Jewish, but they're hurting people inappropriately. So that becomes a dilemma for Christians because it's not always clear in Jesus' teachings how I take care of the victim when I'm in the position to perhaps help the victim. Well, didn't the story of the Good Samaritan kind of illustrate that? What you're supposed to do? Who is my neighbor? Yeah. Hmm. Any thoughts? Uh, I have the idea that God may not be looking at our sins the same way we do, just because we can remember things that have happened to us and wrongs that have been wronged us, doesn't necessarily mean that God looks at it the same way. He could be able to look at it and keep an objective view and still care about us. Where as far as us, we might take it and use it as something that continually hurts us. Okay. Or does he look um, at our disease instead of our symptoms? Ooh, there's a thought. Is it is it Psalms where where the the, the text says that I, you know your your sins will be as far away from me as the east is from the west? I've always been fascinated why they didn't say north and south, and then I it hit me that there's a limit to how far north you can go, and then you're heading south. Then you go south, and then you reach the South Pole, and then you're going north again. But you can keep going east forever. East and west never meet. So does God look at our sins, our sins, our symptoms, as Lori suggested? Or does he is he more concerned with our sickness, our distrust, the, the lie that we have bought into and seek to heal the disease, let the symptoms resolve themselves? So we've defined what love is. Let's look a little bit about at, at what the results of taking internalizing this love and and see what the the fruit of that will be. Who has Galatians five, twenty two and twenty three? But the spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self control. There is no law against such things as these. Is this what people should recognize in us as professed disciples of Christ? This is what being a disciple means. And that's hard work. Is it? Indeed. For whom? I believe that uh, that sounds like dying to myself. Dying to self. Absolutely it does. And yet as we 
continue to take in the healing remedy that is offered through the Holy Spirit. The last uh, gift, fruit of the Spirit, is what? Self-control. Self-control. We're not, we're not being controlled by the Holy Spirit. We're not being controlled by God like, like a puppet. We become so settled into the truth about the character of God and about his healing methods and his principles, this becomes part of our very being and who we are, and we exhibit self-control. Yes? I have a question, just because, like, I've known people who have struggled with, like, addictions and stuff, like alcohol or something, and then they give their life to Christ, but they still struggle with it. Like, it's still, you know, they fall back, and is it just because they haven't surrendered completely? Or, like, because... It looks like they have, and I know you can't judge just from the exterior, but that's just something that's always confused. Well, um, we probably should have defined what is and isn't a good question in here. A good question is one I know the answer to. (laughs) That was not a good question. (laughs) I'm kidding. I don't know that I have any brilliant insight. I, I I can say that we are often allowed to deal with the consequences of our choices. God doesn't always suspend the consequences of the choices that we've made. And someone who has become an addict of whatever, there are certain changes that occur physically. There are genes that get expressed, and we can change our genetic expression from the choices we make. We've learned that in, 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 in fairly recent research. And God often endures, uh, often allows us to endure the consequences of our behavior. And, and for him to suspend those consequences, in many cases, would violate our freedom of choice. And, and would keep us from learning you know, a, an adequate lesson. If, if God just magically took away the, the um, craving of every addict, would they, would they really learn how destructive alcoholism is I've got time for two more hands Jody and, and uh, if I give my life to Christ and I have cancer my cancer is healed and I think alcoholism is a disease and it's just not something that's just going to be wiped clean I think it's something you always have to battle with just like cancer you're always going to know that it was there in your body and you get treatment but this is not necessarily healed Good point. Thank you. Yes. Just a visible sin, and don't we sin? That's it. Um, you know, with anger or distrust, pride, or jealousy, and those aren't visible sins. But we still love God, and we've still given our hearts to Him. But we still can't get rid of that sin problem. Amen. Thank you. All right. I want to thank you all for valuable insights that I got as well. Helps me avoid my worst fear of finishing here twenty minutes early. <laughs> Good job. Good job. Let's uh, close with prayer. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for each and every one of these people in front of me. I want to ask for your continued blessings on this class corporately and individually. Uh, please be with those of our group who are not with us and bring them safely back uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, I want to ask a special blessing on each individual and family represented here today. When you come again, maybe I'll all be standing ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.